0: Good morning. My daughter, well, my youngest daughter gave me these church bulletin bloopers. She said, since you have such a great time laughing with your ladies, mom, she was embarrassed last week when I laughed so much about Nebuchadnezzar becoming like, you know, an animal and people being frogs and... So anyway, she gave me these church bulletin bloopers, and I'm sure you've all seen or heard most of them over the email, um, but I thought I'd share some of these with you, and don't listen, Terry. Terry is our church secretary, and she does the church bulletin, <laughs> and sometimes we do have some bloopers in there, don't we, Terry, and they're, they're fun, but I thought, you know, laughter is good medicine, isn't it? It is. It's good for the soul. It's good for the, the body. It's just good, so here they are, some of them. The Low Self Esteem Support Group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. (laughs) And I know you've heard this one, but it's still funny. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. Weight watchers will meet at 7 p.m. Please use the large double doors at the side entrance. (laughs) Oh, let's see. Next Thursday, there will be tryouts for the choir. They need all the help they can get. (laughs) Pastor is on vacation. Massages can be given to the church secretary. (laughs) That really does change. (laughs) <laughs> She'll take the massage. Uh, <clears throat> potluck supper, prayer and medication to follow. <laughs> I like this one. A, be- a bean supper will be held on Tuesday evening in the church hall. Music will follow. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of all those things not worth keeping around the house. Be sure to bring your husbands. <laughs> oh, the third verse of Blessed Assurance will be sung without musical accomplishment. <laughs> oh, there's a few more in there, but oh, some of them aren't very appropriate, especially the one about the ladies' Bible study. <laughs> Okay, open up your Bibles if you would, please, to Daniel chapter four. We're going to actually finish this chapter today, and we're going to say goodbye to King Nebuchadnezzar as well. All right, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for laughter. It is it is good to laugh with sisters in Christ. It's good to fellowship with our sisters in Christ. It's good to discuss your Word with our sisters in Christ and. And we just love being here. It's such a a blessed privilege to be able to assemble together with those who also love you and want to serve you and want to know you in a deeper and richer way. And thank you for what you are teaching us through your spirit and your word. Thank you, Lord, for um, Daniel and the example he is to us. And thank you for even men like King Nebuchadnezzar who we can learn from. We can learn what Not to do and what to do. Just so much in your word. Now I ask that you would help us to focus again on what you have to say to us. Um, May our minds not drift. May you keep my um, mind clear and help me to only say those things that would please you. And Lord, we just love you and we thank you so much for the beauty of your creation. Thank you for this beautiful spring, almost summer day you're going to give us today. It's already so gorgeous out. And thank you for hope that one day we have the blessed hope that we may not die. As I heard my grand, little granddaughter is telling people, do you know we may not have to die? We could just go to be in heaven without dying. Thank you for that blessed hope. But even if we do, we know that we'll be absent from the body and present with you. And there is no greater hope than that because it's a sure hope. hope we can just base our whole lives on thank you for the truth of your word and now go before us where we pray these things in Jesus name amen have you ever prayed about something for a long long time or wished for something for a long long time and then it finally came to pass and you said it's like a dream come true well that's the title for our lesson today We're going to discuss how one man's dream came true, but at least at first it wasn't in a good way at all, because he went into a stage of monomaniac insanity that caused him to behave like an ox, to eat like a cow, and to look like a bird. And that's not exactly the kind of dream you want to have come true, is it? Uh, but it was the exact fulfillment of a dream that he had been given by God himself some 12 months earlier. Now, Dr. John Phillips, if you're not familiar with him, we actually had him at Ladies' Bible Study years ago. was from Britain. Had, uh, he's, he's with the Lord now. But he lived in Raleigh, and he's written a whole series of commentaries um, called Exploring. They're the Exploring series. And in his book on Exploring Daniel... In chapter 4, he says we are given four interesting visions of King Nebuchadnezzar, and here's how he um, describes them. They are a king cowering in his bedroom, a king crowing on his rooftop, a king crawling on all fours, and a king contrite on his throne. So that would be a great outline, and that was his outline for this chapter. We've already discussed King Nebuchadnezzar cowering in his bedroom on the night he received his cow-warning dream. (laughs) You get that little play on words there? So now, in this final lesson on the spiritual journey of King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see him go from proudly crowing, on his rooftop, to humbly crawling on all fours, to being most contrite on his restored throne. So that's where we're headed today in our lesson on verses 28 to 37. Now, we ended our last lesson with Daniel giving counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 27. That's a key verse to understand. Let me read it. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. That's a key verse. Daniel had dared, daring Daniel, you know, dare to be a Daniel. He had dared probably with God's leading to go beyond just giving King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream he went beyond that by adding some important godly advice that, if taken, would forestall and possibly even prevent altogether the divine discipline that was otherwise coming the king's way. He told the king to break away from his sin, his sins, to do righteousness. He even told him to cease from his iniquities and to show mercy to the poor. That counsel, do you notice, is actually given in the form of four commandments. Commandments, break away, cease, do, and show. You know, it was brave of him, it was daring of him to counsel the king because he, the king had only requested the interpretation. He did not request any counsel, did he? So that was brave of him, but it was exceedingly brave of him to then uh, give him some commandments. Can you imagine Daniel commanding the king? But that's exactly what he did. In his counsel, both the nature and the manifestation or the demonstration of true repentance were made known to the king. Now you know that repentance, repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. These people who don't include repentance in their their gospel, they're wrong. You must repent of your sin to be saved repentance is more than just being sorry. It's more than just regret. It is more than uh, sorrow. It's more than even trying to clean up your life. Um, And it's even more than having your eyes open to the truth. The prodigal son, you know, he woke up to the truth of his condition one day when he found himself destitute in, in a pigsty, right? He woke up, it says he came to himself. However, if that was only as far as he went, that wouldn't really be repentance and lead to salvation. It was only when he got up and he turned his back on his life of sin, you know, he put his back to the pigsty and his life of degradation and returned to his father and made a confession to his father of his sins that he then demonstrated genuine repentance. Repentance is a turnabout, isn't it? A 180 degree turnabout. You put your back to your sins, your old life, and you turn totally toward God. It was Nebuchadnezzar's pride. That was his big problem. Of course, he had other sins too. But his pride resulted in his oppression of the weak and the the poor. I think I jumped ahead when I asked you a question in your homework about that this week. Um, Now I'm going to sort of give you the answer to that. I should have had that question in this week's questions, but his pride is what resulted in him oppressing his people. His humiliation was going to be the cure. So what is the connection between pride and oppression? Well, if you think about it, pride is actually a form of plagiarism because it claims for oneself the glory that actually belongs to another. You know, plagiarism is like saying you wrote something and you didn't you're stealing it from someone else well pride is robbing the glory from who god nebuchadnezzar took for himself all the glory for the grandeur of his kingdom you know maybe with just a token head nod to his to his gods but he gave absolutely no glory to to the true god even after the signs and the wonders that the lord had allowed him to personally experience I can't imagine a greater sign than seeing three men walk out of a burning fiery furnace. That's definitely a miracle. It's like resurrection from the dead. Um, In his twisted mind, in his unregenerate mind, he set himself in the seat of God, didn't he? Instead of having God on the throne of his heart, he put Nebuchadnezzar, self, on the throne. And so the reason for his divine judgment, the reason for his divine judgment in thinking, himself to be an ox man and that was his judgment. He was going to actually think he was an ox. (laughs) i got to prevent myself from laughing again so I won't get reprimanded but um, it still makes me laugh because it is kind of funny to think of that but his judgment was uh, the reason for it is because first of all he had blasphemy thought of himself as a god man didn't he? So he was thought of himself as a god man so God made him an ox man. (laughs) And this was very similar to another glory-seeking creature named Lucifer, Lucifer, the shining one. You know, in Isaiah chapter 14, there are two kings, two literal kings who are mentioned by the prophet, by Isaiah, as human illustrations of the original fall of that once magnificent cherub called Lucifer. And you know who those two kings are? the king of Tyre and I don't know which one it was I tried and tried to find out who, who it was, the name of the man but it just says the king of Tyre and I couldn't find out T-Y-R-E um, and the other one is the king of Babylon and we do know who they're talking about there and who is it? Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar, it also could have dual meaning because it would be Nimrod at the original Babel, he was the first king of Babel and then also Nebuchadnezzar, well when an individual takes glory that doesn't belong to him, it results in his wrong perception that he is better than others. A person's pride may also cause him or her to think that those um, of lower, a lower, well, I think of Hinduism, a lower caste or um, lower social status, those that are poor, even poor health, maybe not as educated, all kinds of things. But The one with full full of pride thinks that he he is better than everyone else, believes that those those things are proof of the other people's inferiority and that it's kind of like a karma penalty for their inferiority. And we know that even the Jews believed this. They were wrongly taught by the rabbis. Remember the disciples' question about the man born blind to Jesus? They said, who did sin? Him in his mother's womb or his parents? That was like, you know, he deserves this because he either sinned. I mean, what does a baby do in the mother's womb? That's so sinful. <laughs> you know, kick her. <laughs> or, or, you know, that, that was just so far off. But they were, de- that, they were picking that up from the pagans around them. And that's what the rabbis actually taught. Well, eventually, the proud will even justify the use of position their position and their power to take advantage of the poor and that's what we see that the the religious rulers of, Nis, of Israel were doing weren't they they thought that they were superior and so they would take advantage they would oppress the widows and the, the poor and they didn't they didn't have any real genuine concern for the people did they they hated the Gentiles they hated the Samaritans I mean they even hated half-Jews like Stephen just terrible What pride will do so pride and power pride and power combined with false theology lead to oppression the pride of the self-righteous will result in a rejection of such godly attributes as grace and mercy and charity god's perspective however is so completely different isn't it he has, I mean, that's the world's perspective, that's Satan's perspective, but God's perspective is that the prosperous and the strong, as demonstrated by that great tree of the dream, are to provide for and to protect the creatures of this earth and the people of, of the earth who are not as privileged with power and position as they are. They're to, to help them, aren't they? The leaders should be the servants. We talked about that before. Not, you know, make great kings of themselves, but they're to be the servants of the people. And, uh, of course, they're to, to provide for and be merciful to and gracious to the poor and the weak. So Daniel's counsel to Nebuchadnezzar as his only hope to, to possibly be spared from divine chastening was that he must recognize that his powerful position was not the reward of the gods, because of his own merit, because he was so special. You know, he had a great brain or whatever. Rather, they were a responsibility from the God of heaven. It was the God of heaven, and he had told him this many times, hadn't he? God put you there. You are responsible to him. He put you in your position of power over this world. And to whom much is given, what? Much is required. So he told the king, you know, you need to repent. Of your pride. Uh, You need to cease from using your position to further your own personal kingdom and enjoying all the luxuries that you have gained at the expense of others. He needed to begin to use his authority for the benefit of the weak and the poor. And doing so, just like the prodigal son, doing that would be proof of genuine repentance. It would be the, the fruit of the root of his genuine repentance so in this lesson a dream come true we're going to consider the last two of five sections of our outline for this whole chapter we're going to be looking at pride's plunge and praiseful prologue and in the first of these we're going to look at procrastination pride and then the plunge so read with me I'm going to look at um, I'm going to read verses 28 to 33 this is pride's plunge Starting in verse 28, it says, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that the dream had predicted, it came upon him. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. And the little pronoun, or not pronoun, what's it called? In, prepositional word? Is that a preposition? Yes, (laughs) ask my teachers. Okay, in can also be translated upon. And most commentators say that they had flat roofs in those days, and the palace would have had a very, very, it would be high and a flat roof, and from there he could look over the whole city of Babylon, so they all all say he was up on the roof. And he was looking at the kingdom of Babylon, and then he spoke, verse 30, the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Doesn't that sound like Lucifer boasting, you know, I will ascend and I'm so wonderful. All right, well... While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until you learn your lesson, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will." The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like birds' claws. All right, there is a definite contrast to the aftermath of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's chapter 2 dream, and here the aftermath of Daniel's interpretation of this second dream in chapter four you know remember back after Nebuchadnezzar heard Daniel's interpretation of that first dream which was about the the image and he was the head of gold and and Nebuchadnezzar liked that interpretation didn't he he liked that one so what did he do when Daniel was finished he fell down before him it says he worshiped him Um, And then it says he he, he made an offering to Daniel's God, and he praised Daniel's God, and then he even promoted Daniel, didn't he? Gave him three high and mighty positions in his kingdom. But in the aftermath of this second dream, there are no words of praise, are there? Nope, words of praise. I don't read any between his counsel in 27 and verse 28. There was no words of praise to Daniel, no words of praise to Daniel's God, there was no promotion, nada. You know what this tells us? Don't expect people to thank you for telling them the truth. Nebuchadnezzar, this was not a good prognosis. I mean, it started out good, and I'm sure he would have thanked him if it ended with the mighty tree, you know, but the tree got cut down, (laughs) and then it turned into a beast with a beast's heart, so he didn't like it. So he didn't thank Daniel, did he? I mean he didn't even thank him at least he didn't kill him One lady said yesterday at least he didn't kill him for giving him the the advice he did but um so and is that true when you tell people sometimes the gospel message and you tell them that there is a holy God you're accountable to and you are a sinner we're all sinners um, and you need to repent. people don't usually thank you do they unless if they do that's a good indication that their heart is in the right direction. So don't expect thanks. Now, by this point in his association with Daniel, the thing about it is Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel now have known each other for about 40 years. So, in all that time, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar should know that what Daniel spoke about the dream was true. And yet, instead of listening to God's warning and Daniel's advice about his own impending judgment, he did. What most people do when they are confronted with the truth that there is a holy God, holy, 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 way holier than most of us realize. There is a holy God to who we are accountable. We are hopeless and helpless in our sin, and we need him desperately. We need to repent and get saved. But he did what most people do when they hear that message. He did nothing. <laughs> He procrastinated doing anything about it. In fact, I think he did his best to just dismiss the whole thing from his mind. He didn't even want to think about it. He was too comfortable, wasn't he, with his life as it was? He had a good life. He didn't didn't want any change. He was comfortable being the boss. I mean, talk about a boss. He was the boss. No one was higher than him. No one told him what to do. And he was very comfortable also with his gods. His gods didn't demand much of him at all. They didn't demand him to change his heart or to change his life. They allowed him to continue living self-centeredly, you know, the lust, enjoying the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, because his gods were made after the imagination of men's own minds, and so they were just like them, could do just about anything, perverted and awful, right? So he didn't want to change, and humility, that word, was not even in his vocabulary. It was not a virtue that he, as a man, and especially as a king, that he would think of exhibiting. That was a no-no. I mean, humility was only a positive virtue in servants and in wives and concubines and in the conquered people of his kingdom. His military personnel and his court, um, other than Daniel... And the three Hebrews and the Jewish people, but um, even his enemies, they, they would think he was weak if he displayed humility, right? I mean, that was even the thinking of the Roman, in the Roman days, the Greek, I mean, all the world empires, they think if somebody shows humility, a leader, that they're, they're weak. And that would be say, the same thing would be true to, in his mind and in the mindset of, of his culture if he were to display mercy then he too would be perceived as being weak. That was just the society he lived in. Humility and, and uh, mercy just were not, not supposed to be part of a, a king's a reign or the military, any of those guys. So although the days and the weeks that um, immediately followed this dream and Daniel's interpretation of it, I'm sure we're anxious for the king. Don't you think every day when he got up, it was still on his mind a little bit at the beginning, And every day he'd probably wonder, kind of anxious a little bit to see if something really weird was going to happen to him. (laughs) But then when nothing did, he didn't make any changes. He didn't summon Daniel to come in and ask him, tell me more about your God. That would have been a good thing to do. Come on, Daniel, tell me more. I want to hear more about your God. Read to me from your scriptures. He didn't do that. He didn't ask, what must I do to be saved? did he? He, As far as we know, he didn't do anything. And so when weeks turned into months and no calamity befell him and nothing catastrophic happened, he just gradually dismissed the dream altogether. You know, just as no smiting stone had come crashing down from the sky in the 35 years or so since he had that first dream, Neither did he now expect that he would become like a beast in the field, eating grass. I mean, after all, that is really pretty preposterous. That's a hard word for me to always say. But it is pretty out there, isn't it? (laughs) He likely came to think, as so many people today... Do about warnings of judgment by Christians. He likely came to think that Daniel was, you know, one of these Jesus freaks. I know when I first got saved, it was back in the 70s when the Jesus movement was big, remember? And my parents, that's what they immediately thought of me that I had joined the Jesus freak bandwagon. I was a Jesus hippie. (laughs) But I'm sure that he thought, you know, well, Daniel is just one of those fanatical doomsayers who's just a little bit monomaniac. (laughs) He's a little bit mentally unbalanced in one part of his brain because he is just so fanatic about his God. How tragic it is when sinners deceive themselves into thinking that God's delays in judgment mean that he either doesn't even exist, that is the growing movement in America today, isn't it? Atheism. So they, you know, well, they've been saying judgment's coming forever, and it isn't. So he just, there is no God. It's, it's ter, it's tragic when people think that his delays mean he doesn't exist, or that he's impotent, uh, or that he's much less judgmental than his own word says he is. And it's so foolish when men think that they are safe to continue in their sins simply because. They have not yet tasted the consequences of their sins. And did you notice I said not yet? Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is is full set in them to do evil. That means because judgment doesn't come immediately after somebody sins, they just continue on in their sins to do evil. Well, Nebuchadnezzar may have forgotten. I don't think he really forgot, but he purposely tried to put the dream from his mind. He may have forgotten, but who did not forget? Who never forgets? The Lord didn't forget his uh, warning of impending judgment. His, actually, it was a prophecy. He's not slack concerning his promises, as so many say, right? You know, where's the promise of his coming? Well, he's coming. The only reason he, he delays is because he is displaying his long-suffering with man's stubborn rebellion. We've lived in the age of grace for 2,000 years now. He hasn't returned because he's patient with men. I don't know why. I wouldn't be. But he is so long-suffering with us. What he sees going on in the world, I can't imagine. You know, even the little bit I see on the news, I can't stand. I have to turn my eyes away sometimes from what they even show. But what he sees worldwide, mm, I I, just, I wouldn't be that patient. But he was he's been gracious with mankind, and he was gracious with Nebuchadnezzar because he gave him a whole extra year, 12 months, to think about the judgment that he said was coming. He gave him 12 months to repent, humble himself willingly. But Nebuchadnezzar, I think a pharaoh, you know, in Egypt, he just continued to resist God, resist the, the Holy Spirit, by putting his own thoughts and his own ways above God's. Isn't that exactly what he did? Ah, this isn't going to happen. I mean, he'd seen God already do so ama- amazing things with that fiery furnace and And yet, he puts his ways, just like he did, you know, when he built the image in chapter three, that he wanted everybody to bow before, how did he rebel against God in that? Because he built the whole image of what material, what metal? Gold. That was rebellion against God. That was putting his ways and thoughts above God's. And he continued in that year to nourish his pride. He kept on feeding his pride. So he made the wrong choice, didn't he? Made the wrong choice. He chose grazing above grace and so as verse 28 tells us everything that was predicted in the dream was fulfilled the word of the Lord is sure and it will come to pass it will it will 12 months after Daniel's counsel a great surge of pride swelled up within Nebuchadnezzar as he was up there on the rooftop of his palace his royal golden palace and he was you know we used to raise peacocks, my husband and I, mostly my husband, but I know and I could make the sound of a peacock, but then my husband would say that's not very feminine, Catherine. <laughs> Back away, I know. <laughs> but he was up on top of his roof and he was crowing like a peacock. And I know peacocks don't crow, they honk. They actually cry out help. It sounds just like they're crying for help. Have any of you ever had peacocks? You know, honk. Help! <laughs> And people say, oh, What's happening? And I said, No, it's just the peacock's peahen. But he was up there and he was just, you know, like a peacock. His, his feathers were open. Of course, he's the peacock, not the peahen. Have you ever seen the peacock, you know, in the mating season? And they open up their big, beautiful feathers and then they start shaking them, they vibrate them, and then they come in like that and they try to corner the peahen, you know? and get her to notice how beautiful he is, and she could care less. <laughs> really? I mean, really. She does not even look at him to admire his great beauty. She's, you know, she's just looking for the next little piece of corn on the ground. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Anyway, he's up there, and he's just, he's just crowing and saying you know, how great he is, how wonderful I am, and how beautiful this city that I have built is. You know, I thought he's already on his way to avianthropy. You know, becoming like a bird <laughs> up there crowing. He was absolute dictator of the whole civilized world, after all, you know. He was, oh, in his mind, he, he was the best. He was superior to everyone. All the people and all the riches of the Mediterranean, the Persian Gulf, Elam, Elam, excuse me, Judah, Assyria, Armenia, and Babylonia. They were all his. And he took credit for all of it, didn't he? He took credit for everything, and as his eyes, lust of the eyes, as his eyes looked at the horizon of the city in all its splendor, and it was a splendorous, magnificent city, he vainly exalted himself with the words, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of my kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? He was full of the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. He was at enmity with God, wasn't he? He was in a dangerous place. And uh, I thought about that. He was in a dangerous place. Think of it. He was high up, wasn't he? He was high up, probably the highest. Well, maybe not the ziggurats would probably be higher than him. But he was high up right there in Babylon, where all this reaching up into the heavens with the tower kind of business began, right? (laughs) With Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And I think his position illustrates a lot. Um, Towers. You know, towers always represent kind of the Babel thing, that, that mindset to try to reach God on our own efforts, in our own efforts. Um, that's where the you know the, all the altars to the false gods. You always read about them being in high places. It's a dangerous place to, to. And remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness? Where did he take him? Up on the top of a mountain to show him the whole world. So I think his height being there at the top of his um, palace illustrates the corrupting influence of his own elevated mindset. He thought that he was you know, himself above everyone else, including God. So what does this tell us? Be, we- be wary of, of heights in your own area, uh, in your own life. And we all have a tendency to do that. In one area or another of our lives, we all tend to elevate ourselves. You know, like, well, um, I won't even give some examples, but I'm a, well, I will. Yeah, she's the best church secretary. Um, well, I'm raising my children better than so-and-so. I'm a better wife. I keep my house cleaner than that one. My garden is prettier than hers. Well, I'm more educated than them. You know, all kinds of dumb things. So just, oh, don't be proud about anything in your life. Really, really. We have nothing to glory in of ourselves because everything we have, everything we are, everything we hope to be is all of him, isn't it? Any gifts that he has given to us are to be used for his glory, not for our own. We are obligated to use them. I know years and years ago, I, I really got uh, hurt. Because um, one, one lady in the Bible study said, you're just teaching so you can have the preeminence. And that hurt me so bad. And I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And I finally came to the conclusion, no, I'm not. Because if I, in my flesh, I don't want to be teaching. I don't want to spend all the time that I do teaching. And I would really rather not be teaching, but I feel obligated to do it. Because God has blessed me with the ability to study. He's given me a husband who provides, so I have the time to study. And so, you know, but that got me to searching. We need to search why we do what we do. But anyway, pride is such an awful thing. He hates it above everything else. What does he hate the most? Pride. Pride. absolute. All right. Um, so now we reach the plunge. Okay. <laughs> Apparently Nebuchadnezzar wasn't quite finished with his boasting when God had had enough. I mean that was it. That was just the straw that broke the camel's back and he interrupted him with words of judgment and I think these words were probably all spoken through the messenger angel, the watcher angel, and not by God himself. And here are the words, O King Nebuchadnezzar, O King <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. That interruption right there made the connection between the crime and the punishment very clear. What was the crime? Pride, unrepentance, even after warning. And what's the punishment? Lose your kingdom and be abased. Super humility. I think this is for the first and only time that Nebuchadnezzar actually heard directly, not via a dream, but this time, or not via a prophet, Daniel, but this is the first communication directly from heaven. While he's awake, he heard this. Can you imagine hearing a voice speak to you from heaven? The kingdom is departed. I mean, that had to be fearful. The king's boast, however, had crossed. That mysterious line between God's mercy and his wrath. And we never know where that line is, do we? But Nebuchadnezzar crossed that line. And hearing just those words must have been terrifying for him. But then he's reminded of Daniel's words in the interpretation of his dream 12 months earlier. uh, Words that spoke of his judgment. And that's what we read in verse 32. It's just a reminder. You know, He tried to forget the interpretation, but there in verse 32... The the watcher says they're going to drive you from men. You know, you're going to dwell with the beast. You're going to eat oxen. And then he gives them the purpose for all of it. What is it? Until you know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Now, the few moments that it took for that watcher angel to speak those words, the king, I mean, he had a few minutes to think about this. He had to be fearfully contemplating his sudden predicament it surely would have flashed through his mind how serious had been his neglect of Daniel's counsel and how serious had been his procrastination to do anything about it. And he must have thought how foolish, how foolish had been his attempt not to take seriously anything revealed to him by the God of Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the God they worshiped. After all, they were special men and special things that happened to them. And how I'm sure in that few minutes he thought, oh, what a fool I have been. And those would be terrifying moments to meditate real quickly on these things. Because he didn't have more than 60 minutes to think about it. Because what does verse 33 say? The same hour, that very same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar. And what's the thing? The judgment, the decreed judgment. God's period of grace for the proud to repent does not last forever, does it? It's good to give people great, a period of grace, period of probation, but it doesn't last forever. It doesn't last forever in the life of an individual. It does not last forever in the life of a nation. And it doesn't last forever in the life of the whole world system. The time of his predicted judgments will come. And they will be right on time, won't they, according to his calendar. It happened in Noah's day. He was so gracious to the people of the pre-flood days, gave them 120 years. And they mocked Noah. They thought hey, this guy was really out off his rocker, building a huge boat, nowhere near water. And they had never seen rain. But judgment came, didn't it? It happened to both the northern kingdom of Israel and it happened some hundred years later to the southern kingdom of Judah. And it will happen worldwide after the church age ends. It will. Seven years, men will be like beasts, just like Nebuchadnezzar. And it happens individually when every unsaved, unrepentant, unregenerate person takes their last breath. Once they've taken their last breath, it is too late. Now, fortunately for King Nebuchadnezzar, God didn't strike him dead. He could have, couldn't he? Right there boasting on the rooftop. But he had promised him preservation during his judgment years. He, he struck him, he didn't strike him down dead, but he struck him down with monomania. He still had all of his fa- fa- uh, faculties. You know, he had his mental faculties and he had all of his emotions and his, he could remember things except there was one One segment in his brain that convinced him he was an ox. (laughs) That is strange. Uh, Within the hour of his puffed up boast about his own might and his power and his honor and his majesty, just like a sudden stroke of lightning, like when Lucifer fell from heaven, you know, the minute he said his five-eye wills, what happened? Like lightning, he fell from heaven. Um, So just like a stroke of lightning... The heart of a beast took possession of King Nebuchadnezzar. One minute his mind was totally clear. One minute he was standing there in his arrogance, you know, in his peacock feathers, doing this and everything, and uh, <laughs> he, his countenance was normal, his walk was straight. And the next moment he couldn't focus. His eyes looked bewildered, you know, kind of like the fur- furtive look, of, furtive look of a beast, kind of. Wondering, what am I doing on top of a palace when I should be out in the field eating grass? What am I doing here? And I'm sure he maybe he even started hunching over a little bit. His countenance just took on a totally different um, look. Humility, you see, was going to be added to his vocabulary, wasn't it? God has such interesting ways of doing things, doesn't he? He's going to learn about the word humility. Um, And he was going to learn what it felt like to be lowly even lowlier than the people who he oppressed. I mean, he was even going to be lower than the lowest of a human. He was going to be a beast of the field, like a beast. So the abasement was absolutely abysmal, wasn't it? I can't think of getting any lower than that. The man whose military genius had conquered the earth, the man whose architectural genius is still hailed as being spectacular, The man who tasted every exotic and dainty dish imaginable was driven from men, couldn't even live with men, he was driven from men to eat grass in the field like an ox where he would get wet from the morning dew and was so unkempt, I mean I'm sure as a king that they came in and shaved him or whatever they did now, I don't know if they had that little beard that hung down like that but they would take care of his hair they would dress him they might even put a little powder on his face for makeup you know he had people to do everything for him but now he's so unkempt no one dares to go near him and his hair grows long and white and maybe even fluffy looking I don't know so that it looks like eagle's feathers <laughs> and his and his his nails get so thick that they look like the claws of a bird, kind of like an eagle's claws. So guy, you know, looks kind of like a bird. Maybe he had a big hooked nose, too, just the part. He's down there like an ox, but he looks like an eagle. <laughs> and I got to thinking about it. You know, if any of you have thinning th- nails, here's a clue God gives us in the word. Start eating grass. Maybe they'll thicken up. <laughs> The Lord here was doing two things at once. He was fulfilling his own prophetic word. And I believe he was also answering the prayers of Daniel for Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. Now, some people have wondered why did God send such harsh judgment upon this king? I mean, what he did to him, we all have to admit, is really rather extreme, isn't it? And there have been a lot of bad dudes in this world. There's a lot of bad dudes today in this world. Heartless, cruel people. I mean, if he did this to Nebuchadnezzar, why didn't he do it to Joseph Stalin or Adolf Hitler or other people? Why? You know, why Nebuchadnezzar? Um, Well, there are several reasons that we would suggest. For one thing, he really was bad. He was extremely cruel. He was volatile. He was a violent man. And those are not good characteristics for anyone much less, uh, you know, someone with as much power as he had. He did not use his God-given position of authority and power for the good of his subjects. Every one of his conquests, whether it was in battle or in building, everyone had only added to his own arrogant vanity and pride. It was all about him. He had serious, we talked about this, anger problems temper issues he, he needed anger management classes big time and he often would lash out in severely cruel ways when he didn't get what he wanted didn't we see this when he was quick to issue a decree to have all the wise men in his whole kingdom cut into pieces and their houses made into dunghills I mean even wise men that lived way off and hadn't even been there and what was the reason for it because they couldn't tell him a dream that he had dreamt who could I mean that's humanly impossible. And didn't we see it again when he issued another decree that everybody should bow before his golden image, or what? They'd be burned to death in that fiery furnace. And then he burned to death three men who had served him faithfully for for some 20 years at that point in time. And he said, "Stoke it up seven times hotter, even." And then he made a decree following that to have anybody cut up into pieces in their houses made a dunghill if they did if they said anything negative about Um, The Jewish God. I mean he was so quick to issue these horrible cruel decrees and from Jeremiah we learn that he actually had roasted alive two Jewish men. In second Kings we we find that he and you all remember this he put out King Zedekiah's eyes. I don't know with a hot poker or whatever it was but and that was right after he had slain his sons so that the last thing the king ever saw was his sons being tortured to death and then his eyes were put out. That's not really nice, is it, at all? There were other things in the scripture that talk about him. He, As he marched through various lands and conquered the people of those lands, he was not content just to defeat their armies um, and leave the people in their homeland and just... Um, demand heavy taxes from them. He wasn't content with that. What he would do instead was he would uproot the conquered people and scatter them and then resettle them in foreign lands so that uh, they they couldn't, they were in a a place where they, I mean, just pulled away from everything they had ever known. They were in places where that people didn't speak their languages. It was like a repeat of Babel, really. I mean, you know, he had people living everywhere that couldn't speak the same languages, and he did that on purpose so that they couldn't uh, join together and, and try to fight against him. It was pretty smart militarily, but it, I just thought about Babel and all the different languages, but it just would break the people's hearts because they were pulled away from their homeland and they were separated from families. It just made his, the conquered people miserable. Just read Psalm 137, you know, about the Jews. And how they felt. They hung their harps on the willow trees. And they had no song within them anymore, did they? And everywhere his army went, they left behind a pathway filled with bodies. Bodies of women and children and the elderly and the sick and the handicapped. Because those were people who couldn't keep up the pace with his horses and his troops. Think about that. They didn't have horses. When he took young Daniel captive and the others with him in that first exile, they were on foot and they had to try to keep up with the horses and everything and those that couldn't do it didn't make it. So, you know, the pathways were strewn with the bodies of these people. Not only was he heartless to his foreign captives, but Nebuchadnezzar was also indifferent to the cries of his own people, Babylonian people. To him, uh, the poor, the captives, and even the common people of his own kingdom, they were like animals to him, animals to be used for the furtherance of his own ambition. ambitions. He used them like ox, you know, to do his labor for him. He oppressed them. He showed no mercy to them. He built his own golden city to glorify himself with slave labor. In his pride, he even set himself up above the Babylonian gods. You know what he would do if one of his gods did not answer his requests? You know, he'd go in and he'd offer some kind of oblation, an animal sacrifice or whatever, and the god didn't do what he wanted him to do. He would have that temple to that god torn down, and he would burn alive all the priests to that god. No, he was not a good guy. Um, Another reason, now that's one reason, okay, okay, so he was really bad, he was mean, but there have been a lot of mean people in the world, and a lot of mean rulers, so why the judgment, this judgment? Well, another reason was for the glory of God himself. In spite of the man's great sins, and his horrific pride, and his oppression of the poor, can you believe this? God loved him. Wow. Wow. God loved him enough to begin a work of grace in his heart to save his eternal soul and to use his testimony to reach everyone in his kingdom with the truth that he is sovereign God. Who better in that world at that time to get saved than King Nebuchadnezzar? Who else could issue a royal proclamation that would get to the whole known world about the truth of sovereign God? That man that man he needed, he wanted to use the mouth of that man and the testimony of that man so he got that man saved but he did love him it's hard to imagine he could love someone like that but he loved me and I was a sinner too all it takes is one sin right There's another primary reason, and this one's important, another primary reason for God's judgment of beastliness on Nebuchadnezzar, and it has to do with the fact that he, as the first king of what period of time? The times of the Gentiles. Now, he's the first king of that times of the Gentiles. Therefore, he is the head. He is the figure um, of the entire, he represents the entire anti-God world system. The nature of his affliction is a prophetic picture in type of what will happen to the entire world system in its final seven years. We call the tribulation, the seven years of the tribulation. As Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast, so will mankind act like beasts. They will have like beasts' heart. There will be no more restraining work of the Holy Spirit, and men will just, totally be depraved, act like beasts during those seven years. Civil authority will be snatched by beast-like rulers, the Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, and the false prophet, the beast out of the land. And as the humbled King Nebuchadnezzar finally, after those seven years, finally did pay homage to God, so too at the end of the seven years of tribulation at Christ's coming, All the kings and all the nations of the world will, just like Nebuchadnezzar, do what? Bow before him. So, you see, God needed to save this man. He needed to cause him to be seven years like a beast and see him saved because all of this, get the bigger picture, all of it is a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in the world in the end times. During his time out in the field... The throne of Babylon was maintained for King Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was quite mad. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was quite mad. I thought about how um, he had anger issues, right? He had anger issues. And so God says, well, if you have anger issues, I'm going to really make you mad. <laughs> I'm going to make you mad cuckoo mad. <laughs> Wouldn't you think that during those seven years, one of his sons would have been put on the throne instead of him? Or perhaps the Chaldeans would try to, you know, rule things in his absence. Wouldn't you think that the nations he had conquered after his absence, you know, one year, two years, three years, there's no sign of him at all. Don't you think that they might have um, tried to rebel, pull together and have a rebellion since there was no king of Babylon that anybody could see? So... Why, why wasn't he replaced during those seven years? In the seven years of quiet. The, the kingdom was secure during those seven years. How could that be? Well, what's the main reason? God had made a promise, hadn't he? He, he promised that he would keep things safe and uh, for Nebuchadnezzar. He would preserve him and he would protect his kingdom. He would give him back his throne. And that's pictured in the dream by what? That band of iron and brass. And God doesn't break his promises. But from the human side of things, there are some other reasons suggested by commentators as to why the king's throne was kept for him during his seven years of craziness. Well, for one thing, he was a symbol uh, for the nation. He and and Babylon were basically synonymous. Once King Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene, Babylon didn't last very long as a kingdom. So he's kind of like the George Washington of Babylon. (laughs) And his court kept things quiet among i I don't think they told the people I don't think they told the citizens what was going on um, because they were at a point in his reign in King Nebuchadnezzar's reign when things were running very smoothly. there were no battles going on there there was peace, and it was best not to rock the boat. It was best to keep things as they were I, and likely I think that the men of the court who knew about it kept kept him hidden, maybe there in the palace gardens, and they may have told the people that he was sick, he was ill, um, but that he was still issuing orders on how to run the kingdom. This is just a a guess, but maybe that's what happened. But replacing the king would have led to the loss of the positions of the leading officials because what happens when somebody new comes into office, as we'll see next year? they change everything, don't they? They put all their friends in office and they, you know, fill the cabinet with their buddies. So this might have, you know, this would have meant the loss of all these men who loved their position. So they they just kept things as it was. Also, Nebuchadnezzar had a wife, Queen Amethyst. And she was the one for whom Nebuchadnezzar had built the hanging gardens. She was a mead. And she was homesick for her median mountains. And so he built that ziggurat with all the greenery on it um, to remind her of her home place. He lavished many great gifts on her, built a lot of things for her. Um, And she may have had a large part in maintaining her husband's throne in his strange absence. Now, she does pop up again in the next chapter. Chapter 5, verse 10. The night of the uh, handwriting on the wall, she appears. And guess who she reminds everybody about? This is 25 years later. She's still alive. And she has high regard for Daniel. And she says, you know, you want to know what that means? There is a man. (laughs) And she recommends Daniel. And speaking of Daniel, Daniel himself had great power. Don't forget how much power he had in the Babylonian kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar had made him ruler over the whole province of, of Babylon. He was the chief of the governors of all the wise men of Babylon. And what else? He sat at the gate for the king. He was the king's representative judge and counselor. So perhaps with the cooperation of the queen Daniel and her, maybe the two of them, were instrumental in obstructing any efforts to depose the king. I think those two held down the fort for King Nebuchadnezzar, and that Daniel probably told the others in the court, "Hang in there. This is only going to last how long? Seven years, and he'll be back on his throne." Well, let's look. Let's conclude this with the praiseful prologue, um, verses 34 to 37. Um, Starting verse 34. And at the end of the days, now who's talking again? This is, okay, this is the return to the first person. This is the end of his tract. So Nebuchadnezzar is now speaking. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes into heaven and mine understanding returned unto me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him that liveth forever whose dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Does that sound like a new man? Wow. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, that's the angelic host, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? In other words, no one can question what God does. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. If that doesn't sound, I mean, you compare those words with what he said over in Peacock Days in verse 30, it's a new man. The evidence of his conversion is found when he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He's no longer relying on his own wisdom and strength, but he's relying on God for his deliverance, for everything. He stopped looking down. I'm sure for seven years he was basically looking down at what patch of grass to eat next. So he stops looking down at the grass beneath his feet, and instead he looks up to God above, fully realizing that he was the one, he is the one, who has dominion over everything. And how long is his dominion? Forever. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying God is eternal sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar had turned 180 degrees. He had repented, and the change is evident in the first sane words that he spoke, which were words of blessing the Most High And praising and honoring him that liveth forever, whose dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. The smiting hand of judgment had accomplished its purpose, it had turned a proud ox into a humble sheep. (laughs) The correcting rod was replaced by the good shepherd's staff. Nebuchadnezzar left the field of grass to enter the flock of God. He went from grazing to praising. Some people say he didn't really become a true believer. And you'll you'll look at commentators and they'll say, no, this wasn't enough. He really didn't get saved. But the mellow fellow of chapter 4 is not the same hot to trot king that we have been looking at. And I'm going to, I just, I can't believe any unbeliever would say what he said about God, both in his preface, if you go back and read that, and in his prologue. He sounds, he sounds very much like another former hot-headed murderer named the, uh, Saul, the apostle Paul. It sounds like something Paul would write centuries later in his epistles. But let's say that his humbling experience, and I'll close with this, but let's just say that everything he went through did not produce true conversion and that the commentators are right and he isn't in heaven, okay? But if that's so, I want to ask some questions. What then was God's purpose for having acted so dramatically in his life? Did God go to all the effort and orchestrate everything To bring Daniel into his life, to love him, to pray for him, to witness to him? Did God allow him to see tremendous miracles, including seeing the Son of God in the midst of a fiery furnace? Did God put him through all the humbling years of his boanthropy just to smack him upside the head for his vanity? Is that what it was all about? Did God begin a work in the king he didn't finish? Did he bring the pagan proud king to the brink of salvation and then just leave him there unsaved? Did he not answer Daniel's prayers for the king? Or is the king truly a new creature in Christ? Not a goat, not even an ox, but a sheep of the flock of God. Well, let's look real quickly at the change in his words. Previously, this is the before. Before, Nebuchadnezzar had regarded the God of the Hebrews as he went so far after the first dream to call him a God of gods. That isn't enough, right? He's still a polytheist, but he called him a God of gods, but now he confesses that God rules over all who live in heaven and in earth. Before, he confessed that Daniel's God was a revealer of secrets. But now, the after, he acknowledges that that he does according to his will, not only concerning the armies of heaven, but concerning the inhabitants of the earth. Before, he challenged, remember that? He dared to challenge the God of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, saying, and who is that God that can deliver you out of my hands? But now what does he say? He says, none, none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? In other words, no one can stop him from carrying out his purposes, and no one has the right to question what he does. Nebuchadnezzar's concept of God had grown to the point that he acknowledged him as the eternal sovereign of the universe. He says he alone has the right to define what is right and what is wrong and to expect absolute obedience. And then at the same moment he repented, he says in verse 36, four things returned to him. His, his reason returned, his renown returned, his fame was returned to him. The respect of his counselors and lords returned to him because they again sought him for wisdom. And his uh, reign was restored to him. He says, I was established in my kingdom. Except he got back even more than he had lost because he says, excellent majesty was added unto him. Isn't that our God who can do exceeding abundantly? added, he had added majesty. Um, Nebuchadnezzar also came to understand that it was his own pride that had offended God and that his oppression of the poor, you know, he, he learned that. He justly deserved his judgment. So what is he doing? He's admitting that he is a sinner and he says that God's works are truth and his ways are just and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like the man got saved to me. And I think God wouldn't have started this. I don't think he spent four chapters, you know, getting this man, one thing after another, his spiritual journey, just to leave him hanging. He only lived about another year after this. We're saying goodbye to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, this is it. We don't hear from him again in the book of, um, well, we do, you know, people talking about him. But um, he lived one year, you know, eating grass, might be good for the nails, but not so good for the health out in the field, so he lived one more year. But during that year, it was the best year of his life, uh, because not only was he enjoying being saved and knowing the true God, he probably did call in Daniel and learn more and more about him, but during that year he sent forth this proclamation that is preserved for us in the eternal word of God. It is a testimony of a very proud and a very, very wicked sinner who God temporarily humbled by making him like an ox in the field so that he would be permanently a sheep in the flock of the redeemed. And as I said before, don't you know, in heaven, he is saying those seven years were worth it all. Absolutely worth it all. All right, let's pray. Father, what an encouragement this great love story regarding Nebuchadnezzar is, or it should be for all of us, because... Truly, if you could love a man like him, you can love anyone, and you do. And so too, if you could save a man like Nebuchadnezzar, you indeed can save anyone, and you do. And not only is this truth an encouragement to us with regard to people that we may be praying for, and I hope people we are praying for who don't yet know you, and the free salvation that is provided in Christ. But it's also an encouragement for us to be more like Daniel and to keep on praying, not to give up, to keep on praying for their eternal souls. We shouldn't think that anyone is beyond the reach of your amazing grace and your love, because they're not, as long as they're still breathing. Thank you for your long-suffering patience with mankind. Thank you for it, for me individually, for all of us. And Lord, if there is one here, who yet not has repented, truly repented of her sin, and turned to you, 180-degree turnabout, turned to you, confessed the sin, and asked you to save her. I pray she would do that this very day, for today is the day of salvation. We can't be presumptuous and think we might even have tomorrow. None of us knows. Thank you for the time together, Lord. Thank you for these women and their hunger for you. Help them to be salt and light this week and bring us all back safely. Next week, we pray in your blessed name. Amen.